Our scripture reading this morning is selected Proverbs about anger, and I would ask that you, we, be the scripture readers this morning, our voice boxes, but God's voice. So would you join me in reading aloud these verses? Whoever is patient has great understanding, but one who is quick-tempered displays folly. A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. A hot-tempered person stirs up conflict, but the one who is patient calms a quarrel. Better a patient person than a warrior, one with self-control than one who takes a city. A person's wisdom yields patience. It is to one's glory to overlook an offense. A hot-tempered person must pay the penalty. Rescue them, and you will have to do it again. Do not testify against your neighbor without cause. Would you use your lips to mislead? Do not say, I'll do to them as they have done to me. I'll pay them back for what they did. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. The word of the Lord. We've heard the word, and now we will see its effects in action. If you haven't noticed yet, Christianity is a religion where sinners have all the advantages. If someone steps on your toes 70 times 7 times, you have to forgive them. You have to, to love them. You have to do what's in their best interest. If someone speaks ill of you after you leave the room and you hear about it, you have to keep your mouth shut, not respond in kind. You need to forgive them and do what's in their best interest. The burden and cost of forgiveness is on you. The reason is because the Father has forgiven you and we must forgive one another. The problem is, after a few rounds of stow-tepping hurt, that is, toe-stepping hurt, I'm going to protect myself by staying angry at you. I'm going to punish you by refusing to forgive. Nine out of ten times, that works pretty well. The side effect, however, is this thing, this arthritis of spirit that we call bitterness. Anne Lamont said that an unforgiving, bitter heart is like drinking rat poison and then waiting for the rat to die. Jesus calls to us, come to me, 
all of you who are weary and burdened and angry. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am humble and gentle, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus calls to us to come to him and walk with him through the complex realities of life, and he will give us skill to navigate. The Hebrews call that skill wisdom. Wisdom is more than just knowing the facts. Wisdom is more than just knowing the rules. Wisdom is a partnership with Jesus who brings eternity into our lives and helps us evaluate every decision we make from the vantage point of eternity. That's wisdom. And if there's ever a season of life where we need skill to navigate... It is through this emotion of anger. Anger in ourselves and anger from others. We need help. So it's surprising how often anger appears in the Proverbs, as if it really is something we encounter and feel. I want to talk about three observations the Proverbs give us about anger. The first is its power. Anger is a power. Second, I want to talk about the source of anger. I want us to do an MRI on our anger together. I think it will be enlightening to see where it comes from. So the power, the source, and then lastly, I want to talk about how the Proverbs can help us heal our anger. Let's begin by talking about the power of anger. We see it in this verse, chapter uh, 1919. A hot-tempered person must pay the penalty, rescue them, and you will have to do it. Again, hot-tempered person is a Hebrew word that literally means something as hot as the sun or fire. Now, we in Colorado, we know a little bit about fire, don't we? We know how useful it is. We know that just one little flame heats our house and gives us hot water to shower. We know that one spark just keeps our car moving down C-470 at a good clip. We also know how useful it is. Cooking, heat, light, bonding, melting, all kinds of useful power. But we also know that when this power is taken outside of its normal constructs, it can be a very dangerous power. Acres and acres up in flames in a matter of minutes. The Proverbs show us how destructive anger can be, how powerful it is in our lives to destroy. First, it talks about how it destroys our health. A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. All of that in the umbrella of anger. We see that it's rotting the bones. It works on our insides. Research study after research study reveals that anger is a leading cause of heart disease, strokes, depression and anxiety, and a weakened immune system. Anger rots the bones. Uh, I was doing some research on it, came across this a few years ago. The Gallup uh, did a poll on uh, what are America's most hostile cities. Any guesses? You got it. It's always sunny in Philadelphia. Because it's hot. Everyone's upset there. 
the cheesesteaks. Philadelphia, the rest of the list, New York, Cleveland, Chicago, and Detroit. Average basketball teams, very high hostile index. On the lowest of the hostile index, the best places or the least hostility, Des Moines, Iowa. Yeah, like who'd want to live there? Minneapolis, Seattle, Honolulu, and Denver. Well done. Well done. Here's what's interesting. As the medical experts reviewed the data on the hostile index, Dr. Redford Williams, who teaches at the Duke University Medical School, said this. Anger kills. There is a strong correlation between hostility and death rates. The angrier people are and the more cynical they are, the shorter their lifespan. Anger destroys health. Anger also destroys community. The next proverb speaks this to us. A hot-tempered person stirs up conflict, but a one who is patient calms a quarrel. Stirs up conflict. Do you remember a few weeks ago when we talked about the power of words? We talked that the proverbs uh, use a metaphor for words that they're like swords. And the thing with a sword is, is you can put it in and pull it out, but what stays? The wound. If only we could pull the wound out. But the wound stays. When we speak words in anger, specifically designed to hurt people, you can't pull them back. And there's damage, there's wounds, there's also collateral damage from people around who absorb this kind of break of family and community. Philip Yancey tells the story of a friend whose marriage had gone through some rough times. One night, his friend George passed a breaking point and emotionally exploded. He pounded the table and the floor. I hate you, he screamed at his wife. I won't take it anymore. I've had enough. I won't go on. I won't let it happen. No, no, no. Several months later, Yancey writes, my friend woke up in the middle of the night hearing strange sounds coming from the room where his two-year-old son slept. He went down the hall, stood outside his son's doors, and shivers ran through his flesh. In a soft voice, the two-year-old was repeating word for word with precise inflection the climactic argument between his mother and father. I hate you. I won't take it anymore. No, no, no. George realized that in some awful way, he had just passed on his pain and anger and unforgiveness to the next generation. Destroys our health, destroys community and family. Thirdly, the Proverbs destroys the mind. Whoever is patient has great understanding, but one who is quick-tempered displays folly, 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 deck the halls with breaks of folly. You ever explode, say some things, and then cool down, and then think to yourself, boy, I feel like a fool. Do you know why you feel like a fool? Because you were a fool. Anger. It's interesting in the Hebrew, 
when it talks about a patient person, it literally says a long face. When it talks about often a quick-tempered person, it speaks of a scrunched face, squinty eyes. It's not only physical, but it also, when your eyes are squinty, you can't see everything. Your perspective is affected. And you lose sight of how important or not the situation really is, and you lose sight of how important other people are to you, and you lose sight of how, uh, the, how much this matters in the whole scope of the world. You lose perspective on all that, and you just... Mary Gordon, several years ago in the New York Times book review, wrote a piece on anger. One hot August afternoon, she wrote, she was in the kitchen preparing dinner for 10. Although the house was full of people... No one offered to help her chop, stir, or set the table. She was stewing in her own juices when her two small children and her 78-year-old mother insisted that she stop her preparations to take them swimming. <laughs> they then positioned themselves in the car and began to honk the horn and shout her name out the windows. So all the neighbors could hear, reminding her that she'd promised yesterday to take them swimming at the pond. That, Gordon said, was when she lost it. She flew outside and jumped on the hood of the car. She pounded on the windshield. She told her mother and her children that she was never, ever going to take any of them anywhere. And none of them was ever going to have one friend of any in their, uh, uh, one friend in any house of hers until the hour of their death, which she said she hoped was soon. Then the frightening thing happened. I became a huge bird, she said, a crow. My legs became hard stalks. My eyes were sharp and vicious. I developed a murderous beak. Greasy black feathers took the place of my arms. I flapped and I flapped. I blotted out the sun's light with my flapping. Even after she had been forced off the hood of the car, it took her a while to come back to herself, and when she did, she was appalled because she realized she had genuinely frightened her children. Her son said to her, I was scared because I didn't know who you were. Anger destroys our health destroys community, it destroys our mind, and lastly, it destroys our will. A hot-tempered person must pay the penalty, rescue them, and you will have to do it again and again and again. Psychologists often speak of anger as an addiction because when you're angry, your body loads with adrenaline and there's a certain high that comes. And, and when you're angry, you understand that it does make things happen. And there's a certain addiction to having a coping skill that actually works. And then, as with most addictions, we become pretty good at denial. Oh, I, I, I'm just a very direct person. Uh, I just had to get something off my chest. Uh, I just needed to be sure that you really heard what I was saying. And we 
deny it and we keep going there. And what happens is we become lonelier and fewer people really trust us or want to be around us. And so we become lonelier, lonelier so we, we jack up higher on the anger and it's a cycle. It's, a, it's, it's an addiction cycle. Anger. The power that destroys health, community, mind, and will. That's the power. Where does anger come from? Let's talk about the source of anger. We go to Proverbs 16. Better a patient person than a warrior, one with self-control than one who takes a city. That word patient in the Hebrew is a, a compound word that literally means slow anger or slow to anger. Don't miss this. The Proverbs teach us that a wise person is slow to anger. Now, of course, we see on the side that, you know, yeah, we shouldn't be explosive. We should be under control. Anger should never be explosive, abusive. But we don't often see it that we should have anger. I think most of us would say, boy, I would be a really good person if I never got angry. Well, no, that's not what the Proverbs teach. The Proverbs teach you're wise if you are slow to anger. In other words, there should be some levels of anger in our lives, some expressions of anger. Ephesians chapter 4, 26, in your anger do not sin. That's a weak translation. It's actually in the imperative. It says, be angry and don't sin. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry, but be Angry. We are to be angry about the things that God's angry about and hate them for the same reason God hates them. There should be levels of anger in our lives. And then we go to Exodus. We see this moment, uh, this great moment in history when Moses says to God, God, show me who you are. Show me your glory. Tell me who you are. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger abounding in love and faithfulness. There it is, slow to anger. Now, most moderns are, are not comfortable with this kind of language. Most moderns just want a God of love, not a God of anger. But that is a very narrow and shallow definition of love. And when the fact is, you've never really loved anything unless you've had moments of anger about it. Anger is an expression of love. When something we love is threatened, someone we love is in danger, we're angry. And anger is a legitimate, righteous part of love. I love how Becky Pippert put it several years ago. Think how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. E.H. Gifford writes, human love here offers a true analogy. The more a father loves his son, the more he hates in him the drunkard, the liar, the traitor. If I, a flawed, Pippard writes, narcissistic, sinful woman, can feel this much pain and anger over someone's condition, how much more a morally perfect God who has made them. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer of sin, which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. Anger 
is an expression of love. And so we being made in God's image should have that expression of love, sometimes anger as well. But we should be slow to anger. Well, how does anger get fast? How does anger get out of control? Well, here's something I really, it's really important. This is the MRI. How does anger go from righteous to unrighteous, from healthy to hurtful? We have to go back to the fourth century. I love preaching in churches that like to hear things from the fourth century. Augustine, have you heard that name? Augustine said that all sin, all sin comes from disordered love. That's a phrase you should take home with you, disordered love. What he means is that because we're made by God and for God and God is love, that we have a heart that is made to love. We cannot not love. We're made to love. So the question is not whether you will love something as an ultimate thing. The question is what you will love as an ultimate thing in your life. You are what you love. And so what happens when love becomes disordered, maybe we should love God above all, the great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, your neighbor as yourself. But when love becomes disordered, we begin to put good things on the table of love in our heart. Good things like family and marriage and work and politics and hobbies and money and really good things in life, but we put them as the ultimate thing. In other words, we ask them to do for us what only God can do, give us happiness, security, and significance. When we ask a good thing to do that, it becomes an idol. And when we worship idols, our loves become disordered. And when our loves become disordered, the emotions follow. You with me? Then our emotions become disordered. And that's how anger can go from being something that's loving and righteous and healthy into something that's hurtful and unhealthy when it becomes disordered. So let me illustrate. Anger can become disordered when its cause gets changed. So... On any given day, you're at work, and someone snubs you, whether intentional, unintentional, whether it's a, you know, kind of an insult, or they just ignore you, but you feel snubbed, and you get angry about that. On the same day in the news that morning, you've heard about the situation in in Europe and in Syria, where there are millions of refugees walking through Europe who don't have a place to sleep tonight, and you walk away. How can it be that you are so angry, angry about being snubbed when there are millions of people in the world who don't have a place to sleep? Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to be hurt or angry when you're snubbed, but I'm just saying, do you see some disorder here? about what we should truly be angry about. How does that happen? It happens because while we believe in God and say that he loves us, his love is actually an abstraction in our lives. We're not really convinced he loves us. We don't really live there. 
And so what we really need to do to get our love cup full is we need others' approval. We crave others' approval. And so when we run into someone who doesn't approve of us, it wrecks us. It's because we're stopped loving the Father and resting in His love and understanding that only His opinion counts of who we are. When we have disordered love, our anger becomes disordered, and that's why a snub can hack us off far more than really bad things going on around us. Do you see? The cause becomes disordered. It's also the purpose of anger can become disordered. The purpose of anger is to express God's righteous character and move into situations in order to bring repentance or reconciliation. That's how anger should result, in repentance and reconciliation. But when it's become disordered, we go in and our purposes are no longer reconciliation. Our purposes are revenge. We have a kid, a teenager, who maybe, you know, goes out and does something foolish. Our goal as a parent should be to surgically remove the foolishness and work on that. But when we're angry and our loves are disordered, it's no longer about the problem in the kid. It's about the kid. And we're going to take it out on the person. And our love can become anger and our anger can become destructive because we're no longer focused on the problem. We want revenge on the person. So how do we fix this? How do we heal our anger? We've seen how destructive it is. We see that it's a result of disordered love. When we haven't, are not loving God with our whole heart, it affects our emotions. And often anger is because there's disordered love going on in our heart. So how do we bring healing? How do we evaluate how to fix our anger? Three suggestions for you. First, we need to admit our anger. All of us get angry. I once heard, you know, there are people whose anger is like a rhino. You know, you, you know they're angry and they admit they're angry. There's others of us, and I fall into this camp, who are more like a porcupine. I'm passive aggressive. I'm never going to charge you with my anger, but boy, if I'm angry at you, I'm going to be a porcupine to you. I'm going to be painful to be around, which means I'm going to ignore you, neglect you. I'm going to passively aggress against you and make you feel bad because I'm better than you because I'm not angry at you when I'm really hacked off at you. Are you, Anyone in the house with me on that? You're a porcupine? Oh, come on. I'm not the only porcupine in the room. And I know some of you are rhinos. <laughs> we need to admit it. Anger is a warning sign. It's like a light on your dashboard as you're driving through life. When it comes on, when you're angry, you need to stop and say, okay, I better get the oil checked. Better. There's something going on here. Anger is a sign that something's wrong. So we need to admit it. We need to look at it. What is going on that I'm so angry? It's only when we admit the anger that there's any hope of reconciliation. It's only when we admit that we're angry that we can stop being controlled by it. So we need to admit it, and then the good can begin. Uh, Dan Allender, in his book, Cry of the Soul, he, he writes about it, uh, an illustration of how when we admit our anger, good can come from it. But we have to call it out. I, Dan, 
had made a mistake that was going to cost me some extra money and time, I told Susan, my personal assistant, well, (laughs) if you take less time for lunch breaks, maybe we can make up the loss over a year. (laughs) It was quickly said and in my part as rapidly forgotten. Several days later, Susan asked for some time. We sat down and she said, do you have any concerns about my work? Absolutely not, I replied. Why? Well, Tuesday, you made this remark about my lunchtime. And I wondered if you had any concerns or if your comment was something that came out of your frustration. Suddenly, I felt embarrassed. I recalled the remark and wished Susan would just go away. I assured her that I had no concerns and that I was thrilled with her work and her heart for the ministry and for me. I hoped that my compliment would end the discussion and bury my small-minded remark under my gift offering. But she was angry. She did not take my gift and waltz out of the room. (laughs) Instead, she leaned forward in her chair and said to me, sometimes I cannot tell when your teasing is fun and when it hides meanness. Her voice was tender and strong. Her eyes were full of pain and anger. I allowed her remark to roll off my back, and I agreed it must be difficult. But then she spoke with even greater intensity. I don't know what it would be like for you to so deeply desire to be like the Lord and yet so easily hurt others. I was taken back by the intensity of her words and the kindness in her eyes. I wanted to run, hide, weep, lash out. But instead, I felt exposed and invited to reflect on God's involvement in my life. Susan's anger was righteous and redemptive. In this world, it was also rare. Admit it. Admit it and then it can be used and useful. Second, question it. Look at this verse. Do not say, I'll do to them as they have done to me. I'll pay them back for what they did. What's going on there is self-talk. He's talking to himself. He is questioning his uh, anger, rolling it over in his mind. Well, I'm just going to do to them as they've done to me. All anger starts... Not so much from the event itself, but even more from what we're telling ourselves about the event. How we're stewing on it and what we're thinking about it. And that's how we lose perspective on it. But we must question our anger. We must ask ourselves, why am I ready to clobber everyone about this? What love in my life is so disordered that I'd be willing to hurt someone to get what I want? Why am I so willing to defend this, whatever it is? And we question it, and we question it, and we question it until we get it back into perspective. We question our anger. We we have about 100 people now who have been through the Waterstone Leadership Program, and every year we bring in one of the great counselors in the city, Harv Powers, to do this talk on managing conflict. Because you can be sure of one thing, if you become a leader, you're going to have to deal with conflict. 
And when Harv comes in, he does all this great stuff. But one of the stories he tells, we affectionately call the cheese sandwich. One day, into Harv's office walks this couple. And Harv has them come in, sit down. He says, what brings you in today? And they say, a cheese sandwich. And he begins to unpack the story. And what had happened is that just a few days earlier, the husband, feeling guilt that he hadn't been enough involved in his children's life, volunteered that morning to make the children's lunches. So he was hard at work, and as he was making the lunches, the kids wanted a cheese sandwich. And so he put mayonnaise on one of the pieces of bread, folded it up, and as soon as he folded it up, the wife, mom, hollers from across the room, the kids like both pieces of bread to have mayonnaise on them. Well, within about 20 seconds, they were yelling at each other. So Harv started to talk them through. What exactly happened? Well, what had happened was this. The husband was just feeling immense shame and guilt because he didn't even know what his kids liked to eat for lunch. And the mom was trying to defend herself and shouting this across the room because she knew if the kids didn't get the sandwiches the way they want, it would get all around the lunchroom and all around to every other mom in the whole school that she didn't know how to make her kids sandwiches either. What you have here is the shame of a parent and the shame of a parent. This is not about a cheese sandwich. You must question the anger until you know where it's coming from. Remember the cheese sandwich. It's never about a cheese sandwich. But what's underneath? What is underneath? Why? Why am I so angry? About this. So you admit it, you question it, and then lastly, you turn anger into love. That last proverb, here it is. Well, the, the, the famous gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Wow. The, in other uh, cultures in Israel's day, they had wisdom literature. The Egyptian wisdom literature, the Sumerian Egyptian literature, and none of them go that far. All that they would say is when someone moves against you and hurts you, you shouldn't take revenge. Nowhere. This Christianity is unique in saying not only should you not take revenge, but you should actually love your enemy and you should feed them and give them water, which means save their lives. In other words, your anger should not only be for you to feel better, but actually it should cause growth and health in another person. Your anger should be love. And the only way you're ever going to feel love for an enemy is if you actively serve them. Remember, we talked about that a few weeks ago with C.S. Lewis when he had this great quote that the, the best way to love your neighbor is to serve them. Why? Because feelings follow behavior. And so if you want to change your heart towards anyone who's hurt you, the best way to change your heart is to do practical things of love towards them. Well, how in the world can you get your heart to do that? Here's where Tim Keller's helpful. We've been listening a lot to his sermons as we, as we do this series, and he was the, uh, the one who kind of spawned this idea of doing the Proverbs. And he has this great story that he tells that talks about how we can get a heart that's even willing to love an enemy. He puts it in the context of parent-child. 
he has this great line. He says, as soon as you have children, your life goes in the toilet. I mean, literally, your hands are in their poop. I mean, your life goes in the toilet. And the rest of your life, you are sacrificing endlessly. Kids in the room, your parents are sacrificing endlessly, endlessly to love you and give you what you need to be launched in life. But if it hasn't happened yet, it's coming. There will be a moment when you as a parent and your child will cross wills. And it will be something rather big. And you'll say no because in your head you're saying it's a stupid idea. And everyone else in the whole world knows it's stupid. You're not going to do this. And then they're going to say to you something like, you don't love me. You're ruining my life. I hate you. There it is. That's one of those defining moments that every parent needs to expect. What are you going to do? You have three options. First option, you can withdraw and say, oh, I didn't sign up for this. To be told that you hate me, I'm done. I'm out of your life. Good luck. Outcome, not good. Second option, you can respond in kind. And one idiot becomes two idiots. And because you have 30 years of practice in verbal abuse on them, you can call them every name you can think of. You can argue them down and win the argument. And the outcome, not good. There's a third option. You can absorb their wrath, but still come in close knowing that this is a moment like no other in their life when you can move toward them towards repentance and reconciliation. You can come in close, quietly say, I love you, but this is the way it's going to be. That's good parenting. And do you know where that kind of good parenting can come from in our hearts? It's exactly how we've been parented. Exactly how we've been parented. God came into our life. We crossed wills with him. You're ruining my life, God. You won't give me a spouse. You, you won't give me a child. You, you won't give me a job. You won't give me healing. You won't... You're ruining my life and I hate you. God absorbs the wrath, sends his own son in. He became human, he became killable. And yeah, we did. We killed him. But he took on himself our wrath. And he also absorbed the Father's wrath, which was put on him because of our sins. And the Father, instead of putting it on us, he put it on his own Son. So the Son, that's what he's talking about in the garden. Can you take this cup from me, Father? Cup, cup. The cup of wrath that's because everyone has turned their back on me. 
And so Jesus absorbs our wrath and Jesus absorbs the Father's wrath in order that he can come in close and lead us to change our ways and prepare us for home. That's how we've been loved. And when that breaks our hearts, when that melts our hearts and that love becomes our love, then when somebody wrongs us, we can say to the Father, Father, they hurt me, they wronged me, but I wronged you and your answer to me was, forgive Larry, Father, forgive him. He knows not what he does. It's a gentle answer that turns away wrath. And when we know we've been loved like that and it melts our hearts, we can move towards others with gentle answers. But it's hard. That's hard. So we should pray. Let's pray. Let's sit in this moment. Let's ask the gospel to break our hearts again. Let's root out anger. Let's ask ourselves what's going on in our hearts right now. Do all of that while we pray. This is a prayer of the Puritans. Please pray it with me. Take this time. Examine your heart. Heavenly Father, save me entirely from sin. I know that I am righteous through the righteousness of another, but I pant and pine for likeness to thyself. I am thy child and should bear thy image. Enable me to recognize my death unto sin. Whenever it tempts me, may I be deaf to its voice. Deliver me from the invasion as well as the dominion of sin. Grant me to walk as Christ walked, to live in the newness of his life, the life of love, the life of faith, the life of holiness. I abhor my body of death, its indolence, its envy, its meanness, its anger, its pride. Forgive me and kill these vices. Have mercy on my unbelief and on my corrupt and wandering heart. When thy blessings come, I begin to idolize them, and I set my affection on some beloved object, children, friends, wealth, honor. Cleanse this spiritual adultery and give me chastity to you. Close my heart to everything but you. Sin is my greatest curse. Let thy victory be apparent in my consciousness and displayed in my life. Help me to be always devoted, confident, obedient, resigned, childlike in my trust of thee. To love thee with soul, mind, and strength. To love my neighbor as myself. To be saved from an unregenerate temper, hard thoughts, slanderous words, meanness, unkind manners to master my tongue and keep the door of my lips. Fill me with grace daily that my life may be a fountain of sweet water for others to drink. In the name of Jesus, 
Amen.